Aaron, I, I only know kind of what Josiah has told me, and I read through a few of your articles, but um, could you kind of give us a, an intro of yourself, the the high level, who is Aaron C? Sure. Um, my name is Aaron Calvin. I'm a writer and journalist living in Des Moines. My friend jokingly calls me uh, the most infamous journalist in Iowa. Um <laughs> And I try to I try to earn that moniker as as best as I can. <laughs> Terrific. I, I think it. that yeah, you live up to that. Um, I, whenever I see like right wing people from from Iowa getting mad, I know that you did something. That's that's generally <laughs> like when Shane Vanderhart is tweeting a lot. I know like ah, Aaron Aaron tweeted something, didn't he? <laughs> yeah. So I'm not sure exactly where he was last Wednesday, but. Um, <laughs> I'm sure that'll come out. <laughs> that's, I don't know if I'll keep this in the recording, but that's that's been a weird thing to watch because um, his son is one of my best friends. Um, so I, I grew up around Shade and got to kind of watch him come to fame. It was, it was kind of a weird thing. He was at some of the early BLM protests in June, and it was very obvious who he was and why he was there. <laughs> And he had the most ridiculously strange iPhone recording rig. It was like a looked like a steering wheel. It was very weird. Oh my god! Yeah, I uh, from like my my kind of evangelical conservative upbringing. I grew up around like him, and I knew uh, I knew Steve Dace as well. It's it's been very weird that like had I non not gone left, I would have had like a lot of ins in the conservative talk radio world. So. I mean, I think it's probably like bad for my career that I went left wing because I could have I could have been famous. I feel like it's only fair that they should have set you up with a show on WHO or something just for the sake of balance. <laughs> um, I don't really think or pay much attention to those guys, really. Um, mm. Gavin Aronson, um, the editor I work with who runs the Inf Iowa Informer, um, he is the one who mostly keeps tabs on whatever inane thing they're up to. Boy, looks like uh, true to the theme of this podcast, I'll get to kind of multitask here with doing this and then dealing with the were the protesters Antifa fight in the family group chat. So this will be fun. <laughs> oh, good. Good. So if I disappear for long periods of time and then scream, you'll know why. <laughs> all right uh let's, uh let's get started yeah let's go ahead and do that um so uh one of the reoccurring things we've been doing on this show is uh jared and i have been well we've got a, a strained uh co-host relationship so we've been working through the uh evangelical marriage counseling advice book the love dare um and we're, we're on episode 17 of that day 17 love promotes intimacy uh, he who covers over and you know, fences promotes love, but whoever repeats the matter separates close friends. Proverbs 17.9. Wow. Today's dare. Uh, determined to guard your co-host's secrets, unless they are dangerous to them or to you, and to pray for them. <laughs> Talk with your co-host and resolve to demonstrate love in spite of these issues. Really listen to them when they share personal thoughts and struggles with you. Make them feel safe. So, um, Jared, do you have anything you want to... I already keep your secrets fine, but do you have anything you want to uh, share? Any personal stuff before we get the show going here? Uh, I was an 
Antifa plant at the uh, at the January sixth raid on the the Capitol building. Oh, gotcha. I broke gotcha. a window, and I had a lot of fun. Yeah, for sure, for sure. <laughs> Uh, right. Josiah, did you get your Christmas present? Oh, shit. So I still haven't swung by my parents' place. So oh, man. What the hell? Ideally, by next episode, I will I will have looked at your present. I still only know that it's a t-shirt. All right. You need to work on this Love Dare thing. Yeah, I know. I'm really bad at it. Um, let's go ahead and just get started with uh, introducing the show. Welcome to Very Legal, Very Cool, um, a an episode about, uh, I guess, I was most renowned journalist. Uh, also, journalist. Good Infamous. Journalist, so say that. Infamous, Infamous journalist. Shit. Shit. <laughs> and BuzzFeed as well. Um, yes, uh, Guardian Intercepts. Yeah. Yeah, I, I've actually had a few times I've, uh, I've like, shared uh, an article you've written and didn't even know it was you. So you, you tend to write stories I'm attracted to, generally. I don't believe uh, I've ever shared an article you wrote, just to join in. That's fair, you know. <laughs> digital public publishing is hard. It's true. <laughs> it is. Well, uh, let's go ahead and ask, well, what are you guys drinking today? Jared, what are you drinking? I've got water. Oh, good. Um, I've got Boulevard Irish Ale, traditional red ale. What have you got today, Aaron? Um, I'm not actually drinking anything at all. Um, <laughs> so I kind of ruined this portion of the, the questionnaire, but just raw dog in it. <laughs> I, I like that you you work outside of the box here. That's mm -hmm. sometimes really. I, um, I like uh, my favorite thing to drink is whiskey, and uh, my favorite brand of whiskey is wild turkey. Nice. But um, I'm trying to not drink that on weeknights any longer, and kind of practice um, generally abstaining um, because uh, my first child is going to be born. Um, soon so oh, wow. well, here it's best to start them early i was gonna try to be sober through most of that good luck <laughs> well let's go and uh let's ask ask aaron some questions here uh do you want to start off jared uh yeah so you're a you're a food journalist aaron uh which gas station serves the best breakfast food um <clears throat> oh i love you know, if you're in Iowa, you have to say the word breakfast pizza. Otherwise, mm -hmm. Rob Sand will show up in your home and audit you. <laughs> That's um, true. So I guess, you know, Casey's has the original breakfast pizza, and it's probably the best. Um, Come and Go has been trying to do this thing where they're selling breakfast pizza 24-7, um, I don't think that's really ideal. I don't, I've never been in the mood for breakfast pizza at like, yeah, like... 7 PM. Um, <laughs> so I guess I'm gonna have to go with Casey's. Um, I'm not sure how much, you know, I, I don't want to overly fetishize breakfast pizza because it happens a lot, but it's probably one of the better things that's been invented in Iowa. I will say that. 
That makes sense. Wait, breakfast pizza was invented in Iowa? Um, okay, don't quote me on that. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll, we're rolling with it. We're, we like yeah. propagating disinformation. This is how myths, so. this is how myths begin. You guys, do you guys hear breakfast pizza started in Iowa? That's what I heard. I, I don't remember I, where I, I heard it, but I, I remember it being a trustworthy source. I haven't seen it anywhere else except for New Hampshire. Right. That's true. Um, so, so how what what was your role in bringing food journalism into um, into becoming a part of the far left propaganda machine? Um, I felt I feel like. Um, the far left propaganda machine deals too much with the explicitly political and um, you know, wherever there's subtext, I feel like it's the far left media's job to rip it up out of the ground and make sure that everybody understands exactly what's happening. And my role in that um, has been to report upon various institutions that would just like to continue um, being unsafe during times when they are prominent vectors of disease or continue abusing or underpaying their employees as they usually do uh, because most local, especially local food journalism is pretty feckless and unrigorous. Um, so, um, yeah, that's mostly my role is to be, um, as annoying as possible. <laughs> well, you know, piggybacking off that, uh, how much is, uh, Antifa paying you to write, uh, negative things about the Des Moines police? Um, you know, I'm still waiting on my check. I'm still waiting on my Soros <laughs> bucks. Um, I could really use, um, you know, just like a huge amount of like some kind of lobbying cash. Um, and I will accept checks written out to Aaron Calvin and, um, I can put my Venmo out there too. Um, but, um, I'm still waiting, you know, uh, Jared. Oh, sorry. I was, uh, real quick texting my mom about, uh, <laughs> oh, God. well, I imagine you can guess, um, <laughs> so uh yeah um you know you're in food journalism what makes you different from yelp um i can't tell you when anything is open i have to look mm. it up every single time <laughs> um, but i can go i can turn to you for the same level of like hate and vitriol on a on a review site um maybe just Maybe, yeah, that kind of information, but maybe directed more towards, um, you know, the people who are actually responsible for the way that restaurants operate and run and less just like yelling at servers who are being underpaid um, for like for forgetting your dressing on the side or whatever. Yeah, hot take, but yelling at servers makes me feel better about myself. Thoughts? Oh. I mean, I think that that's fine, but I think that servers should be allowed to yell back or even probably, you know, I think there should be like some kind of um, uh, one one free punch sort of mm -hmm. thing. Um, 
I'm just looking for the most equitable kind of customer service relation possible. Yeah, uh, some really, sort of dual setup I think would be good. Yeah, ch checks and balances within the food right. industry. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, so you write for a living, um, and given everything that you've written and everything that's happened, uh, do you regret learning how to read? Uh, like almost every day. <laughs> um, it's made my life immeasurably worse. I think that we can all all sympathize with that, which is why we do a podcast. Yeah, right. There's yeah. no words. That's, that's why I assume most lefty people I know um, are running podcasts right now because they um, like to talk a lot, but not many of them know how to read. <laughs> that's right. That sounds right, yeah. That's also why yeah. a lot of them plug Audible, too, is, is they want to get theory, but they just they can't read. Yeah. Audible is a great service for the books you can't be bothered to read. Yeah. It's true. Uh, Josiah, you got anything else? Uh, I feel like we, we covered most of it here. Uh, I right, guess right. well, this could lead us into talking too here. So, so why should I, I should, why should I care about local politics? Doesn't uh, all the important stuff happen in Washington, DC? Ha ha. Good one. Uh -huh. Yeah. See, wow. Well, you should definitely care about local politics. Um, especially since, um, this, the media resources that used to inform people on what's going on in their local politics um, are becoming greatly underfunded. Um, so it takes even more work than it used to to figure out what's happening in your community. And especially in Des Moines, like since May or June or so, um, there's been a lot more attention being paid to what the city council is doing um, and what the state house is doing. Um, and it's really hard to pay attention and know what your local politicians and local community boards are doing because most of it is extremely boring um, and it's boring on purpose um, to encourage you to not care about it. Um, but the decisions, you know, affect everyone in your community's life. Um, whether that you know, affects you tomorrow or will be something that will affect you or people you know or your children, you know, decades from now. So we'll open the floor up a little bit. You got any questions for us? Um, so, like, is the shtick here that you're, like, supposed to be the the conservative guy or? Uh... Yeah, the shtick. <laughs> no, um, I would say I'm the lefty and he's just more liberal. Um, but then he's, he's doubled down on that because we keep inviting like communists onto the show. So I'm a centrist. Yeah. Uh, okay. Um, so like, you're the guy who has like the big sign on his wall that says better things aren't possible. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I believe no. that, uh, you know, the hell we're born into is about what we've got. And, the the best thing to do is to kind of grin and bear it. <clears throat> Grin and bear it. Life doesn't get better. Wow. That's such you an just get message. more depressed. Very Hobbesian. I like yeah, it. Yeah, I like it. <laughs> um, what do you, you guys, do you guys both live in Des Moines? Uh, I live in Des Moines. He lives in Illinois. Yep. Um, what was your guys' favorite restaurant to eat at, mm. both in Des Moines and, and elsewhere? Mm. I, I don't know about favorite 
overall, but like the first thing that comes to my mind, and I think you would probably appreciate it, Aaron, would be Ghazali's in Drake area. Um, it's like this Greek restaurant. Um, I love Ghazali's. Those guys I, are great. Yeah. yeah, MJ is awesome. Like it's one of the few places I go to that I like know the owner. Um, cause I, I yeah, I he's like, a really, yeah, good. He's a cool guy. Um, I don't know him personally, but every time I've interacted with him, he's a cool guy. And, um, I think it's cool they try to do different things, um, especially pre-COVID, like when they were bringing in like belly dancers and stuff. Yeah, yeah. Um, I personally didn't want to eat food and be there while that was happening, but I thought it was cool <laughs> and I supported it. Um, and yeah. I felt really bad for them because not only are they dealing with COVID now, um, but like almost directly intersecting with COVID. Um the like gentrification machine of the Drake neighborhood oh my God. has kind of just like, and like the, the building of that new hotel has just um, kind of made it. So that entire intersection there on like, I forget which street that is exactly, but the one that runs right in front of them in the old varsity theater um, has just been ripped up entirely and has been like ripped up and under construction for most of 2020 i think and so i'm always seeing on instagram how they're trying to share like parking tips and you know like we're still open you can park you know like behind the bank and kind of jump across yeah. the giant hole in the ground and and we're still here um yeah but they're great and i'm glad that they're still still kicking and, yeah. and still out here yeah, I love I love a lot of the the local restaurants in Des Moines that are are old enough that like my parents ate at them when they were like my age, and I, I know Ghazali's it was under different ownership at the time, but it's been around that long. And then there's um, uh, for those who aren't from Des Moines, there's a deli in Des Moines called Manhattan Deli that's also one of my favorite places to go just for quick sandwiches. And that that place is fucking ancient. That's been around forever. Yeah, my dad loves Felix and Oscar's, the oh, yeah. Chicago style pizza place. Um, and it's it's good i've only i don't go there very often because you have to wait an hour to get a pizza and it also always seemed like more of a, a sit-down place i've never gotten like a takeout chicago yeah. style pizza it'd be like getting like a takeout anvil or something like that yeah <laughs> jared what do you like food what's your favorite food place? uh there's a there's an irish pub here in peoria that i'm a big fan of the food isn't necessarily that good uh they don't really have a great drink menu but i like the place it's the atmosphere is nice and i go there a lot and so well went there a lot and so i don't know i yeah, like it yeah i would i would die to go to like you know the most mediocre irish pub of all time in any city <laughs> and sit there and and have like a, a flat guinness and eat some like cold fries or something that yeah i think that there's right now. something there's really something charming about, about that you know <clears throat> and it's great because there's another pub another irish pub two restaurants down and it's exactly the same and I really appreciate that about both of these, both of these. And I've, I've arbitrarily chosen a favorite. I don't go to the other one. I don't go to public house. You, you I stay at Sullivan's. They are identical in every way. <laughs> Except the blue chief's fries at uh, public house are a little bit better. Yeah. 
the blue cheese chip fries are better there, but the other place also has blue cheese fries. I think that's that's funny in and of itself. <laughs> uh, I, I know Des Moines has one of these, but I don't know if how common they are in that throughout the Midwest. But um, I kind of grew up just accepting that Fazoli's existed. Yeah. And, um, when I went out east to college, um, I discovered that most places don't have fast food spaghetti and um, I've had a lot of <laughs> trouble explaining that to people um, and what that is. I love the idea of just like being on a long car trip and you just want to get some fast food. And so you stop off at Fazoli's, go through the drive through and you just get a bucket of spaghetti for the road. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's basically what Fazoli's is. I didn't realize Fazoli's I like that was... that's a thing was like i didn't realize it was so uh that i did i thought the rest of the country had that i guess i didn't i did too there's a lot of things about des moines that i just kind of thought were everywhere and are actually just extremely weird things yeah but the zolis should probably start like selling spaghetti and like water bottles (laughs) and i because you can then just like slurp it like a noodle at a time (laughs) to the top of it i think that'd be good that's, now, uh, that's I remember choice. I remember getting hit with that like just like it's not not realizing stuff that's local is like local like I I was on like a way back earlier days of the internet when I was younger like on a RuneScape uh discussion thread and I was like yeah I prefer Taco John's over Taco Bell and everybody was like what the hell are you talking about and I oh, realized yeah. like yeah, yeah Taco John's is just here I'd always thought that was everywhere yeah, towards the beginning, I used to play RuneScape a lot when I was um, in middle school or so when I was younger. And at the beginning of the pandemic, when everyone was like, you know, had more of a, had you know, was still kind of like, yeah, we can make it through this. We'll survive instead of now when everyone's like, I want to die tomorrow. <laughs> um, I got some friends to to get back on RuneScape with me, like the old the old style RuneScape. Um, and I was like, this will be cool. I have like so much free time. I can just like grind on RuneScape and it'll be fun. And it was like, wow, this, this actually sucks. Like, I can't believe that I enjoyed this when I was in middle school. My, uh, Mostly because yeah. there's like nothing else, I guess. Yeah, <laughs> um, my, my little brother did the same thing recently where he revisited RuneScape and he's like, I cannot believe I played this for hours <laughs> on end at one point. I'm just clicking trees. <laughs> I actually wrote an article for dig, D-I-G-G dot com um, in like 2014, I think. Um, yeah. It was like a feature about um, how like how much RuneScape, like hardcore RuneScape fans w- refused to let go of the 2007 version of RuneScape. And, yeah, yeah. Um, and like the very like weird RuneScape culture that has somehow like survived for a decade Mm. over a decade now i guess Um, that could be a really fascinating topic to do like a whole episode on or something yeah we We did something similar for neopets yeah we we had a neopets episode at one point um yeah like all those yeah yeah all those things are so strange but fascinating it could be a whole series we get runescape throwing webkins uh club penguin and uh world of warcraft yeah there we go yeah like my uh 
somebody's little brother that I, somebody I know's little brother got kicked off of Club Penguin forever <laughs> just because like they yelled an obscenity or something. Nice, nice. Which so you like were... you know there should probably be more of that. <laughs> it's been Me a lot of my brother and my dad back in I guess middle school or high school. We all got hooked on Eve online. Oh yeah. Oh that that's like that's like hardcore like all of this currency is worth like actually a million dollars in real life. Yeah, I remember there was a there was like a, a space war and there were news articles like in real life written about it because I think it was about half a million dollars worth of spaceships, like real money, half a million dollars worth of spaceships were destroyed. Yeah, this, I read about that. In this oh battle. Yeah, yeah, that's like I, I read about that. that. That was so interesting, actually, to me. Yeah. I, well, there's I, something really incredible about about Eve and and things like that, where you've basically got these almost small societies that build themselves in a vacuum. Once you get enough people into an open world game, they start to section off into their own, you know, their own cities, groups um and clubs and then they they build like these gigantic gigantic um I don't, factions essentially that end up just like owning large parts of the game and millions of dollars of real assets it's crazy well it's like uh, my fascination with stuff like that like eve online and other internet communities like that especially when there's a lot of like real world assets involved um i find that really fascinating because like EVE Online, like Bitcoin, like the NBA, you know, these are all things where like money is thrown around to the extent that it pushes at like the abstract boundaries of what money really is and kind mm -hmm. of shows and reveals how fake money is basically is, is all like very fascinating to me. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's interesting because it's, you know, on, on the flip side of that, there is something real that people get out of it that they right. can assign the value to it's you know all the assets there are digital and it's this fake currency that corresponds to um the real currency but people still connect something to it although bitcoin might be a good allegory for this mm -hmm. just because that is kind of the pure um yeah jared's a big bitcoin guy well i wouldn't say Not that true. but <laughs> But it is something that is valued purely on perception of its value. Yeah, like uh, yeah, the way like value is assigned, things that don't, things that you know are, you're not taught have an inherent value, kind of help you to understand mm -hmm. that nothing has like an inherent value, and all mm -hmm. of the value is assigned. Yeah, well, that's like, um, that's true of everything, real. and to um, a degree, it's all. Uh, you know that's like, what we've assigned it yeah yeah and anything that triggers <laughs> yeah, any good. kind of deep existential crisis exactly is, exactly is worth examining well, actually, i think that's kind of a weirdly good segue to journalism as a whole because i feel like um so so my thing is more like like what i'm in college for is is history but i feel like um i always run into a lot of parallels when people talk about uh journalism and journalism ethics and and history because Whatever you're doing, there's kind of an event that's really hard to describe, but you are assigning meaning to like certain aspects of the event to create a story. Um, and I guess I, I kind of wanted to move it to like, um, you were one of 
I, I think actually, actually on the Neopets episode, that's funny. Um, I actually plugged you following you to understand what was going on in Des Moines BLM as a journalist. Um, because what I was, I was watching a lot of, a lot of people report as I was at events, um, was something you kind of pointed out in an Iowa Informer piece, how um, a lot of the press was kind of like corralled away from the protest itself and oftentimes um, on the opposite side of like the riot shields or whatever. And they were able to kind of, their their stories like reflected that. They reflected taking the police's, the police side of the event. I don't, I don't know if you want to speak on that a little better. Sure, yeah. I mean, um, I, I hadn't, I guess I hadn't planned on um, writing about the the protests in a journalistic way when they first happened. I'd, yeah. I'd been attending them and and tweeting about them a little bit, um, mostly because like I wanted to be there to you know to support the movement for Black Lives, you know, and, and especially in light of everything that was happening both in Minneapolis and, and elsewhere across the country and in the Midwest. Um, and then I just like started, um, I started seeing everything that was going on with the media in Des Moines and how there was no, there was, there, you know, um, there was no reporting that was actually telling people what was happening or giving people an actual good sense of what was happening because yeah, the local yeah, like the local news stations were um, were all kind of you know they were basically checking with the police to know where to stand to know mm-hmm. where to like get the angle that they were going to be allowed to have. Um, so you could just kind of see the police um, dictating what what could be seen in any one shot or anything like. Um, I think it was like June 1st or something like that. Um, I was at the Capitol with a bunch of people protesting mm. and um, right before they broke out the tear gas and the pepper spray and, and started tackling people and arresting people, yeah. um, I looked up on the hill and I saw all the news stations ah, yeah, yeah. positioned there um, kind of looking down um at what was happening and i realized like i like i'm the only one here who could like or like i'm not the only one here but like i'm like no one else is going to write about being in this crowd right now like watching 16 year olds getting sprayed by people in full body armor um and there was a another register there was a register journalist um who was also pepper sprayed yeah yeah I, that I, night yeah I, I i was there this night too i i have pretty vivid memories of this as well um, yeah and like yeah. i got like you know i got tear gassed i got pepper sprayed um i would have been arrested if a friend of mine who was also there hadn't seen me and kind of like mm. essentially grabbed me but bef- like like they were kind of like closing in on me while he grabbed me mm. and like I was like, I was standing there like filming things and, and stuff. And I had told various police officers near me, like, you know, I'm a, like, I'm a reporter or whatever, but like, you know, it's kind of difficult to explain to this guy, you know, wearing a, with a body shield, um, what a freelance reporter is. Um, (laughs) so, and there's various degrees of that, you know, like the local news stations, 
uh we are iowa channel 5 kcci channel a who 13 um they're all like fairly useless um and uh not you know not giving anyone like a real actual sense of what's happening to various degrees and then there's you know places like the register where i was once employed um that you know their investigative reporter who recently um moved on and took a job from axios um he wrote um something that was like an investigative report about um the merle hay protests um Mm -hmm. and different protests like that basically kind of repeating and um elaborating upon a, a line that you heard a lot at the beginning of the protests from people like kim reynolds and um des moines police chief or des moines police spokesperson paul perizic um about how uh you know a lot of the damage being done was being done by outside agitators um or you know well and and the local um one of kind of the local leaders here um abdul samad um, former Black Panther, he he was also repeating a lot of those. Yeah, he was repeating things. a lot of that. That, that was really really hard to watch. Um, yeah, and that's it's a complex issue too. Um, and I, I wrote about that a little bit. and I took a little bit of flack for calling him out about that. Um, and I you know because you know could well and that's like the thing is that a lot of these um, journalists uh, were basically quoting um, Mr. Abdul Samad. Um, who is a respected elder within the community. You know, he's a state representative um, and he is, um, you know, he's a complex figure though. And um, they were quoting him like he represented, um, you know, black people or the Black Lives Matter movement, especially early on before the black liberation movement um, really um, kind of came into its own and started kind of putting out their own press releases and um, watching their own communication stuff. Um, A lot of the, a lot of the press was quoting uh, Mr. Abdul Samad, like he represented everyone's viewpoint on the issue. Um, And so, yeah, like the first piece I wrote for the informer about that, um, that was basically kind of Mm -hmm. more of a media analysis than anything else um, was just kind of trying to complicate that narrative and, show that you know there are a lot of people who didn't agree with that and there were and the issue was which much more complex um than than most people than most of like the the local media was portraying it at the time yeah yeah actually i I think i'll probably put that piece in the show notes because that was um one of the pieces i had jared look over uh for reference um because because that was i think that was when um I caught on to like paying attention to your work more as like a, as like a, um, one of the, one of the journalists I felt was a little more honest to what I was at least seeing when I was at events. Um, because yeah, I, I mean, I think it would be easy for someone who's like a, like a suburban mom or something who's trying to understand what's going on at BLM based off of what's going on in the news to think like, uh, you know, Mr. Abdul Samad is, is representative of just like what these protesters want. But I was seeing like plenty of, of, you know, bickering going on between him and him and, and others. Cause a lot of the other protesters did not want to follow, um, his, his advice in, in protesting, but it, to kind of universalize this, since a lot of our listeners aren't from Iowa, um, 
it, it, I think it's interesting to see how local news will latch on to specific representatives of the community. And they're often like not linked to the community very well at all. Well, and like, you know, and it's just like a matter of narrative and proportion. Um, and, you know, during the most, during the capital MAGA riots last week, I yeah. was thinking about um, one of the protests in June um, that there was recently a class action lawsuit filed around um, where people along Court Avenue were like basically just rounded up and arrested. Mm-hmm. It didn't even matter really if you were at the protest or had been doing any kind of property damage or anything like that. But I remember um, I had been at that protest, but I had gone home early and I had caught the 10 o'clock news and I watched one of like the We Are Iowa Channel 5 reporters stand yeah. in front of like a single broken window at the Polk County Courthouse in Des Moines um, and basically just like, you know, kind of just like give the entire like half hour news segment reportage from like in front of that single broken window. Um, and if you had been <laughs> at that protest, you know, as I had been throughout that night um, and been to like many of the protests, you would see that there was like, there was no property destruction. Um, I remember one moment um, they had, there's like a new come and go bodega that they opened down there in the old Edna uh, Griffin building. Um, and there was this one young, young man that I saw who was, uh, like very angrily, like kind of sharing, you know, different accounts of how he'd been treated by the police and how the different kind of like racist, um, things that he'd encountered in, in Des Moines and Iowa. Um, and I saw him, um, look like he was about to take a brick to the window of that, of that place. And, um, and I saw another protester or protest leader kind of like stop him and be like like we're not going to do that you know kind of like tell him to like kind of like just like chill out a little bit um so yeah like like there's it's it was like a really honestly like it was one of the most like this the summer the the protests and everything it was like one of the most complex um but Mm -hmm. incredible things to have um witnessed and in a place like Iowa and Des Moines, that's very, very white, um, you know, it, it was almost something you thought you might never see. Um, but, you know, seeing what happened then and what's happened since then, um, you know, you can just tell like a lot of other places it was like long overdue. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was yeah, it, it was pretty bizarre. I mean, coming from Des Moines, it, it's, um, uh, you know, a pretty small city. Um, and I, I think it was that 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 protest at the Capitol you were talking about earlier, like in front of the Capitol building that that really solidified my head. Like, like if, if anything represents what BLM over the summer looks like to me, it was that night. Um, and it was it was a couple things about the night. The first being um, I have that image in my head of there being the the giant bear cat kind of tank thing behind the, um, you know, behind the riot shields. And right next to the Bearcat was the uh, was the PBS van. Yeah, and yeah. Like, Remember that too. <laughs> I, I <laughs> it, it, it's almost like a cliche kind of Baudrillardian point to make, but it, it just felt so. I don't know. It, well, and then and then to further that image even further, um, you know, at, if you like from some of the pictures that I was looking at um, that I took of that night. 
the line of, you know, riot cops standing there in their full armor, they were all standing um, with a, a large mortar cannon um, between them. <laughs> yeah. And it almost looked like it kind of like blended in with uh, the the rest of like the heavy armory and heavy weaponry that they were all mm-hmm. wielding. Um, and it's actually, it was, a, it was a cannon that was given to the state of Iowa um, after the Civil War. It was used in the Civil War. Um, oh, and yeah, it's yeah. like, you know, a mo- like now used as like kind of like a, just like a monument at mm-hmm. the Capitol. Um, but it really, you know, it's not subtle. <laughs> no. <laughs> no, yeah. Um, and that night was so I had some friends who lived in Des Moines at the time who were like the people that, you know, if we get split up, we meet at their apartment was kind of the plan. Um, and then as you know, as the tear gas and whatever happened, went down, we um, we all split up. And me and my girlfriend were just like rushing through alleys trying to get back to um, his apartment. And when we got there, uh, he wasn't there. Um, and so we just spent the night in his apartment, not knowing where he had been. He had, he had been arrested is what we later found out. Um, and yeah, like a lot of the images you're talking about, like, I don't know that, that, that specific night is, um, continually like replays in my head where I just, um, didn't know that my small town had that much police power. Um, the ability to arrest like 50 people that night or whatever it was. And, um, yeah, to unleash flashbangs and, uh, tanks and whatever it was, it was insane. Yeah. They, they'd been doing a little bit of that before then. And of course, um, at the Merle Hay protest, uh, they had been unleashing a lot of that kind of stuff. Um, and you know, as part of that, that whole like media narrative and how it was skewed, I wasn't at the Merle Hay protest, but I was um, downtown in front of the police station with a much smaller group of people um, because it wasn't clear how many people were going to be either at the police station or at Merle Hay. Um, And they were basically surrounded with snipers on top of buildings with a whole battalion of police in front of the, um, the police building and a whole SWAT team that pulled up behind this small group. And that was the night when all the officers kneeled um, with the protesters, which, you know, the media then latched onto and conservative Um, politicians latched onto and were like, um, you know, you've got it like, you know, like this isn't this beautiful. Like the police officers are like, you know, so merciful and kneeling with these people and stuff. And um, it was clear, you know, if you were actually at that situation, um, that those people were basically coerced and strong-armed into doing that um, under the threat of, of further police violence. Yeah. Um, I, so, so actually, I was I was at that one. I was at the kneeling one, and um, it was interesting how that unfolded versus how that got reported. Um, because the kneeling, making the cops kneel was like a last ditch effort to get something out of them. Um, and so like, like from my understanding when I was there, it was like a thing that we, you know, you know, we're not leaving until you do this. And they fought with it, with the protesters for 15 minutes before they even kneeled. But then, yeah, you it was know, very, like, yeah. yeah, it was a very tense thing. And then, the, but the news report was like, aha, see police have have kneeled with protesters. This is solidarity. And, you know, they, they went on and tear gas us the next night. Like, I, right. I yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's just like, 
yeah, a perfect example of that kind of thing. And that came up later on when um, the the Gold Braid Association, which represents is basically a union for the Des Moines police officers, um, sent a letter to uh, Des Moines City Councilman Josh Mendelbaum um, for some very mild criticism that he voiced about them. Um, and they noted in that letter, they were like, we we do so much for this community and we were so leading on the protesters and we kneeled with them. You know, it was, um, it is very quickly co-opted into, um, like something meaningful when it was clearly Mm -hmm. not. Yeah. Hmm. But that's like a, that's like reflective. It's not just like a Des Moines issue. Obviously it's very reflective of the problem with a lot of local and national media across the country. Um, yeah, that, you know, and this is maybe starting to change a little bit, but there's just like a lot of constant um, sourcing and reporting upon the police um, as uh, viable and um, transparent sources, um, even though that they've proven mm-hmm. uh, time and time again that uh, they aren't and that they are very, they're a political entity, um, often a very reactionary political entity um, that you know, has their own communications uh, representatives that are often um, trying to establish a narrative uh, that uh, you know, shields them from any kind of wrongdoing and perception of wrongdoing. in healthcare and one of the big issues that we're we're facing is that uh, senior care has been through a PR nightmare through all of this and there's this this issue where Mm. a lot of the news that gets shared about it is all industry and so any of the the positive stories remain within the industry and never break out into the mainstream. So we have that same problem of outsiders looking in and reporting on what they see from 10,000 feet. And um, very rarely does a, an actual story of you know, the, the sacrifice and dedication that some of those people are, are putting in um, actually surface beyond uh, just the industry circle of news. And I'm sure it's, you know, kind of frustrating when I know this is the case in Iowa and I'm sure it's similar in other rural communities. Um, but, you know, the the general dysfunction of the healthcare system has played into a lot of the issues that like nursing homes have. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, a lot of the huge um, issues that I think nursing homes have run into um, during COVID outbreaks and stuff like that, um, understaffing issues or like sharing staff with different nursing homes is just like 
more indicative of the the larger systemic problems that plagued the system before covid made it mm-hmm. immeasurably worse and um you know and that just like makes people it's it's kind of like i think it's kind of gotten people to see a little bit more of what the problems are but mostly just kind of seeing it as a covid related horror story yeah it's yeah, that that's that's like an entire really fascinating conversation that personally i would love to dive into because i i love talking about healthcare. but um <laughs> <laughs> i mean if you want to talk for a bit about it it's, but uh it's but yeah covid is it's revealed a lot of issues with the industry but it's also made clear the 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 complexity of these issues um and you know there's no there's almost no painless solution to healthcare right now mm-hmm. and the way that it gets talked about and and processed through the news is often um i i think especially in the in the mainstream news simplistic to the point of being uh almost negative because when we when we talk about you know fixing healthcare system, fixing healthcare to truly fix healthcare, that would mean that nearly a third of healthcare workers are out of a job. Um, mm. It's it's a bloated, know, it's a bloated industry. And so it's a hugely bloated industry. Yeah. Um, but there's a lot on the back end as well. That's causing that bloat and some things that are necessary evils and some things that are not. Um, and a lot of people tied to, um, a lot of people who have to make choices along a lot of hard choices that don't um, that don't always have easy answers. Mm-hmm. And so I've <clears throat> it's yeah it's a, it's a very difficult issue that we're facing there right now. I it's kind of hard as as a as a leftist talking about healthcare because uh, on the one hand, like it, it, I think it is really, really complicated to reform healthcare. I, I don't think it's as easy as sometimes a lot of um, lefties kind of try to act like because, you know, like, like when you talk about a lot of the the national healthcare systems that do exist, they're like, you know, like they were founded in the 40s or 50s. They have years of growing into a system that's nationalized versus ours having grown in a private setting. Um, but on the other hand, I get I get frustrated because then often the the conclusion people come to when they when they do know that much detail is like, ah, fuck it, let's not fix it, um, which is how I feel a lot of people on the right handle it or the center. Right, and that's certainly not the that's not the way the out. Correct, <clears throat> the correct thing. Um, but you know, in reality, too, um, nationalized systems don't always necessarily function much differently than than privatized systems other than i mean when other than the thing that i think most people care about though which is who pays or you know whether or not patients pay (laughs) yeah yes and obviously but the the problems with health health care dive a lot deeper than that than who pays and it's all interconnected um Mm. so you know when, when i'm talking about the the problems of healthcare, that's one aspect of it. Um, but, but nationalized systems certainly have their disadvantages as well. Um, and I mean, the, for, for quite a few things, the U S system is actually very good if you can, you know, if you have good insurance, um, so (laughs) there's, 
there's a lot of things. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so what, what does that have to do with uh, food journalism? <laughs> well, a, uh, a very major and uh, overlooked component of our healthcare system is addressing the social determinants of health. And a very important social determinant of health is the food that we consume. Um, oh, great. There, there is uh, a lot of research that backs up the fact that much of the, the health crises in poorer communities is a result of not having regular and consistent access to quality food. Um, people end up mm. with a lot of nutrient, uh, nutrient-less calories um, they tend to not have grocery stores that even carry produce within uh, walking distance. And uh, the result of this is an incredibly unhealthy population with higher rates of childhood obesity and um, generally worse health. Mm. And experiments have been done to where um, when, when you can have a health system that considers quality food as a part of healthcare, um, the health of the people in the community is vastly improved. Um, and if you'd like to learn more about this, there's a really good documentary called What Counts. Um, mm. But, you know, food is related to everything. It is the basis yeah. of who we are on a very literal level. Um, Aaron, would you like yes, to take it away? And, <laughs> um, well, and, and more to that point, um, it's been the position of, of many prominent food writers or food media people um, to kind of look at the social determinants of health and how big of a factor food is in that um, and to basically kind of uh, condescend to to people and um, admonish people um, as if um, what kind of food that most people eat or what grocery stores you shop at um, is a, a choice for many mm -hmm. people um, mm -hmm. when obviously, you know, it's not, it's not a, um, a choice. It's not a choice that people are consciously making that the most accessible food to them um, is, you know, uh, substanceless or not healthy or that, you know, they live in a town um, where the the small local grocery store um, was shut down years ago and the only place that there is to shop now for food is maybe a Walmart if they're lucky, but more likely like a dollar store. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, it's, it's a common enough occurrence that there's even a name for it. Food deserts. Um, yeah. Even where I live right now, if you don't own a car, um, there is a corner store and there's a Walgreens. And yeah. if you can't drive and can't access groceries and can't afford food delivery, then that's where you're going to be getting your food. Um, yeah. So there's an access component, there's an education component, and there is, um, well, there's an access component and an education component, and I can't think of a third but there's another component also. <laughs> there's there's certainly a lot of components. They're just uh, eluding me right now. Mm. But those are the big ones. Yeah. But I think yeah. that there is a very good argument to 
to consider food as part of healthcare and uh in the and one thing that's been done as part of that is you know as part of your healthcare your medicare um it, there was a trial done where they literally just included produce as something you could get with your insurance oh oh that's that's interesting huh and i just think that's neat so i guess i guess moving forward um so we we've established that food is political um I guess, uh, Aaron, do you want to do you want to talk a little bit about your work with uh, food journalism, specifically like your Substack and stuff? Yeah. Um, so my Substack um, is greatly neglected because, um, <laughs> unlike people like Matt Iglesias and, and Greg Greenwald, um, nobody pays me to write it, um, and I've had to prioritize a lot of um, paid work. Um, especially over the past year, um, I, I'm very proud of a lot of that work, but I do, um, I do like writing about food quite a bit, especially when I can write about whatever I want. And, um, the Substack URL is aaroncalvin.substack.com, but the name of the newsletter is ways of eating, mm-hmm. um, which is kind of stylized after the landmark television show and book, um, Ways of Seeing, um, which was authored by uh, John Berger, the um, English Marxist uh, art critic uh, who died just a few years ago. Um, But I'm a big fan of his, um, and he kind of put forth in popular culture what was like groundbreaking at the time and like the 60s and 70s that, um, you know, that art is like all art, even art as the people were taught to think was just, you know, purely art um, is political. And the ideas that, you know, people take from that art or are projecting upon that art uh, is political. Mm-hmm. Um, and the newsletter kind of started out as a way for me to take different dishes or, or themes and kind of examine um, through kind of, you know, uh, uh, like materialistic um, and also historical um, lens um, kind of examine different dishes or kinds of food. Um, and that was a lot of fun. I was able to write about, you know, like pumpkin spice lattes and how they became associated so heavily with, with whiteness and, um, mm. and, you know, different like foods as, as food as symbols and, um, and different stuff like that. Um, and I got to do a lot of really interesting food projects or writing about food last year that, um, was really, that tied into that very well and was very meaningful to me. Um, the first was, um, when, um, I actually, in December of 2019, um, I met with, uh, Ben Smith, who used to run BuzzFeed. Um, and now is the media critic at the New York Times. Um, he, uh, I somehow got him to sign on to the idea that it would be interesting for me to write about a Chinese restaurant that doesn't exist anymore and, and closed in 2008 um, oh. in downtown Des Moines. Yeah, yeah. Um, this was this is the place that became Fong's, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Okay, and Fong's, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and Fong's kind of... Um, Full Court Press, um, which is the the restaurant group that owns Fong's um, and owned 
multiple restaurants before that. You know, this restaurant was started by some of the first Chinese immigrants in Des Moines in the the dawn of the the twentieth century. Um, and if it was, you know, at the time that it closed, um, it was very likely the oldest Chinese restaurant in operation in America. Um, and it was kind of, um, it was an interesting story to write because it was all right there, basically in the Des Moines Register archives, just kind of the look for it. Um, but it was really a story about what, what is valued as history and what is considered history. Mm. Um, and Fong's draws heavily on that history. And when I talked to the owner and the manager who runs it, um, she was very, um, open about how you know they basically just they made like the kitschy fong's um fusion pizza stuff that people like and i i personally like um but they made it basically because they didn't want to change they didn't want to go through the trouble of changing that much of the decor so a lot of the pieces in that the fourth street downtown fong's place um are all like several pieces are original to the the former restaurant, which is called Kinging Lo. Mm. Um, and that was, um, that was like one of my favorite pieces I think I've ever written. And I thought it was very, it was, it was a great distillation of how I think that what I think or what I think food writing should be. Um, yeah. Which is historically contextualizing and also making apparent um, the power dynamics and the cultural dynamics at play. Mm. Um, because, you know, the fact that Fong's exists and Kinging Lo was closed or was not made a historical landmark of some kind like mm. you know that that's like a political thing that's a choice yeah. um, so I, th- I think that we're heading down this direction already but um you touched on earlier how food journalism has an ability to you know influence the culture of a community and and you talked a bit about the lack of food journalism in in des moines right now and how that's impacting um, the city, but can you dive more into that? Sure. Yeah. Like, um, in, in May I wrote an, a, um, an installment of the ways of eating newsletter, um, mm. that was kind of just like, a, a roundup, um, meditation on how there's no food journalism in Des Moines. Um, and that, you know, it's becoming a growing trend across the country. You know, there might your your local newspaper, or if you're lucky, um, one of your local news media outlets might have some food coverage, but it will most likely mostly be a, around things that are quick um, and profitable SEO hits, like um, ten best burgers in your city, or. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, this place closed, this place opened, blah, blah, blah. Um, and there used to be a lot of that at the register. Um, and that writer was let go, um, shortly after I was, um, much more quietly, obviously. Um, and, um, he was, he was unhappy that I wrote about him in that newsletter. Uh, he had some, uh, unkind things to say, but, um, you know, and like, and so, you know, Des Moines still has no real, like, fully employed um, food, like food writer, or food journalist. There's um, this old guy who works at um, this giveaway rag we have in Des Moines called City View. Mm-hmm. Um, and he writes like, you know, some 
like very anodyne things about different restaurants he thinks are neat, um, but it's not really substantive. The register has something called a retail reporter who, um, and, and she and some other people will occasionally cover um, food news if it's, you know, if they get around to it. Um, it's, it's clearly like not really a priority. Um, so yeah, like, so a lot of the work that I did in 2020, um, I, I wrote about a lot of different stuff um, just, you know, because certain stuff paid, um, you know, certain people want you to write about certain things, but um, I was happy that I was able to write about and publish um, stuff that really took a hard look at um, what 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 different restaurants were doing in Des Moines and um, how they were reacting to COVID, um, and you know a lot of the a lot of the journalism focuses on how um, on how hard restaurants are hit um, and how they're all struggling, and that's true. But um, you know, as with like you know the general like we're all in this together sentiments that were popular at the beginning of covid um you know not all restaurants were in in this together you know like um some some had more lenient um policies as far as employees quarantining if they had been near somebody who had covid um some had um you know some closed entirely and just offered takeout even after the restrictions were listed, lifted and some jumped in there right away and fully opened their dining rooms and, um, and, you know, different bars had, you know, like raging parties and, and tons of people and like ignored any kind of like either, um, even like, you know, the, the many fluctuating uh, guidelines from Kim Reynolds or, um, yeah. or different stuff like that. So, um, yeah, a lot of a lot of the writing that I did installment in May, um, cheesy pepper jack tornado, which is named after um, uh, a a roller dog item I used to like to get at Come and Go uh, back when doing something like that was safe. <laughs> and um, was it, was it ever basically really like, safe? <laughs> yeah, probably not, you know. But I I could talk myself into it um, <laughs> back before you know it was just like sitting there out in the open air. Um, and that was basically just a roundup of, um, all these like things that I had been hearing and seeing and, and learned about different, um, cafes and restaurants and stuff and how they were dealing with COVID, like the Smoky Row, uh, coffee <laughs> shop chain on MLK. Um, I know they have a bunch of locations throughout Iowa and they like seem to be run by some sort of christian leaning group they like they're like they're like um uh they're like pizza ranch and that they seem like somehow connected to something like conservative and christian and i but they, can never tell exactly what that's supposed to be but it's, they never yeah they're never fully open about it i um yeah so i've, I've mentioned previously on this show that i i outed my former employer to the press um that would be how I originally got in touch with Aaron Calvin. <laughs> uh, right. So, yeah. Yeah. Cheesy, it was, cheesy yeah. Pepper Jack just two tips tornado. like that. Yeah. Cheesy Pepper Jack Tornado yeah. is, uh, 
Yeah, briefly mentions yeah a paragraph on Smokey Row, which is uh. Well, and I, yeah, yeah. another pair. Yeah, <laughs> another it's... paragraph um, talks about the or you know the high end organic market mm. down the road from Smokey yeah. Row. I knew yeah. a guy who was working there, and their de- their conditions there were deplorable, and um, and people were you know su- were testing positive for COVID, but they weren't being made to stay home yep. and. Um, just recently they reinstalled their, their salad bar because apparently they're losing you know, thousands of dollars a week mm. if, without having that overpriced salad bar, you know, for people to serve <laughs> themselves with. But like, that's clearly still like very unsafe. So there's a lot of restaurants that, and a lot of, you know, cafes and grocery stores that, um, were doing suspicious stuff and, and bad things like, um, I haven't reported on this, but other people have about how um, Hy-Vee, Hy-Vee is basically the grocery store in Iowa and Kansas and Minnesota is, it's basically, um, you know, fully driven by a, a right wing ideology at this point. It's a, yeah. a heavy supporter of um, Republicans. It donates heavily to Republican causes and um, their CEO right before the election um, basically sent out a video to all the employees saying um, something that was basically to the effect of that, like, you know, you should vote for, for Trump, but without, you know, violating any of like the laws that would prevent him from doing so, just kind of saying so um, in subtext. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, you know, you're the grocery store you shop at, the restaurant that you like to go to, like, they all, especially in, you know, in the context of covid they all are taking a stance on on something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, I mean, that one of the so, so I've been semi-involved with the um, uh, local comedy scene was like a big, uh, big part of my life for the year leading up to COVID. Um, that's been one of the most depressing things I think I've watched throughout COVID. Um, is generally like, yeah, people take a stance even if they don't use words. Um, and, and one of those stances has generally been a lot of the, uh, a lot of those who host open mics have, have not really given a shit about COVID or they'll, they'll do just enough to say that they care, but, um, it's usually framed in such a way as like, well, this, you know, everybody has their own decision to make. So if you want to take the risk and come here, you should, um, you know, and it's, it's whatever's true to you, you should do, which is not how a pandemic works. Um, it's that's yeah that's been very frustrating to watch i don't know it's like a lot of in- industries not just the the food industry but like pretty much every industry across the board when it comes to covid it, you know the the pandemic has basically been an opportunity for a, a many businesses to say we value money and making money more than anything else right hmm. which is you know um you know, everybody's got to live, everybody's got to survive. Um, but it's, it's difficult to sympathize with the people who, you know, have so much money and, and so much uh, power and so much in, in the way of just like assets in general, um, when it comes to this sort of thing. Yeah. What about uh, what are some um, examples of, uh, of places that are good? I guess. <laughs> um, um, yeah. Well, one prominent example um, in Des Moines, 
is a um a restaurant on Ingersoll Avenue called Lucky Lotus. Um, they uh, used to be called Cafe Fusion, and they moved from the east side um, to Ingersoll fairly, like not very long before the pandemic. Um, and they kind of rebranded themselves to a more like Instagram-friendly sort of aesthetic. Um, and the food's pretty good. It's like um, your usual, uh, you know, Chinese American Thai um, classic takeout kind of stuff, but they've been really transparent and really forward thinking about, you know, closing even when, you know, there's not a confirmed COVID case in the restaurant, um, but um, that, you know, that somebody who works there might have known or been, a, like, been with somebody who might have tested positive. And they've been great about, you know, coming forward and communicating with people when that happens and have just been doing takeout only. Um, you know, they, there's been like a lot of, well, I mean, the, the general um, thing, I think, rule of thumb that you'll see in Des Moines and other and elsewhere is that places that are owned, that are family owned, that are owned by people who have like a real stake in the community and a real stake in, in the restaurant um they're staying takeout only they're you know doing everything possible to ensure that they're safe and that the customers are safe and then the people that you see violating these um these rules or um kind of you know flaunting any kind of restrictions um are the places that own multiple restaurants that um are more you know restaurant groups or owned by restaurant groups um and um those are the people who you know and that's like a kind of business where you know the idea is not to open one restaurant and run it well and profitably but um to open a restaurant and then leverage it to open another restaurant mm. and so on and so forth um to where you know the stakes are a bit higher um and um it's yeah that's kind of like what i've seen both generally in, in Iowa and Des Moines and, and elsewhere. Jared, do you have anything to add? <laughs> uh, you know, I think that it's really beautiful how different people can get such different things from something simple like a cheesy pepperback, pepper jack tornado. Um, Aaron <laughs> pulled this beautiful article that dives into um, the working practices of a restaurant, and I got explosive diarrhea. Thank you. Yeah, that was a great. Well, you can you can take both away, and that was really, um, you know, that's really that was really uh, also a way to talk about um, everyone's favorite gas station, Come and Go, um, Mm -hmm. which owns, um, which is like less a gas station, more of like a like a one of Central Iowa's most powerful landlords, Um, and right before the pandemic took hold. Um, the come and go on the corner of the street where I live um, was torn down um, and they built a new one um, right bef- and they got it built on time and ran into no problems despite the pandemic and they bulldozed an apartment building to do it um, an apartment building that held like fairly affordable housing um, you know and housing is something that you know, Des Moines struggles with quite a bit, despite the fact that it's a fairly affordable, small Midwestern city. 
Um, but, you know, it's just like kind of a testament to how the pandemic has, um, you know, turned many people's lives upside down. But when it comes to a lot of, you know, businesses and growth, um, there's been there's been no no stopping them. What do you what do you think? Um, you know, we probably should move toward wrapping up here, but um, I guess I guess a lot of a lot of, uh, you know, the cheesy pepper jack tornado and the revisited article uh, you did, um, you, you're kind of getting at not knowing what food local food is going to look like after uh, the pandemic, assuming there is an after the pandemic. Um, what a if you were to make a guess, what, what kind of effects do you think? the pandemic will have had what what does it look like after we get past this um well in october um at the at the iowa informer i published a really really long um feature that i worked several months on um both interviewing people and digging through legal documents and doing all kinds of things like that um so basically write a very long feature on um a local business um empire called uh, Jethro's, Jethro's Barbecue, yeah. um, and it's run by um, a local real estate developer um, named Bruce Girlman. Um, and the article basically gets into, you know, how he built this giant barbecue franchise empire in central Iowa um, and was just, like, notoriously... Um, cruel to his employees and um, sexually harassed a lot of the women who worked at various locations um, and kind of, you know, how he, he came to power as a real estate developer that was essentially aided and abetted by um, the Des Moines local government. Um, and even if you're not from Des Moines, um, I think it would still be interesting to, to people um, just because of because there's, there's a Bruce Girlman in every city. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of talk in both the Republican and Democratic parties about supporting small businesses. Um, but in reality, a lot of the businesses that get that kind of support, you know, the monetary support from them uh, are, you know, quote unquote, small businesses like the Jethro's Barbecue Empire, um, who in the pan when the pandemic hit, um, they applied for and received um, hundreds of thousands of dollars in uh, government money in the, in the special COVID um, restaurant relief money, um, while also Bruce Girlman um, turned around and was attempting to sue his insurer um, for not covering the time for which his barbecue restaurants had to close down. Um, his lawyer argued to me that not, not those things were not related, but um, I thought the, there was a pretty clear connection. Mm. Um, so one depressing prediction I'd have to make about who's going to be standing once life, you know, if, if life returns to normal um, would be that uh, Bruce Girlman and his Jethro's barbecue empire will not only be around still, um, but uh, probably be in the process of expanding, hmm. which is depressing. Um, it, and, it is. Yes. Which, and it seems like unfair, but um, that that's the nature. That's the reality of the situation is that um, the, you know, the, the businesses that 
the restaurants that succeed on a month to month basis that that can't afford to close or couldn't afford to close um they will um they they will not make it many of them won't yeah um especially the ones that have a more difficult time adapting to the the drive through takeout sort of nature of things yeah i mean that overall the pandemic has seemed to have been something of an assault on the the like smaller mainstays of cities you know those places that have been around forever but they also um exist kind of as cultural like like local cultural icons but they don't have a lot of income um like like uh one, one of the saddest ones in local des moines for me is there's a there's a venue vaudeville muse um that just closed over the summer and it's like um the venue i like first played a punk show at you know um yeah i used to of, play a yeah. lot of people yeah 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 i um, play shows there when i was in high school and I'd, I'd seen a lot of great bands play there and i really loved that place and yeah i was basically doomed from the start yeah um and i grew up in the in the western suburbs of mm. des moines um and that's kind of what i see places are going to look at more like you know the things that you love about a city like the little restaurants um that mm. no yeah, that aren't like well known or um extremely popular um you know there's just like those places are going to be gone but applebee's is still going to be there you know and the the chain restaurants places like that like they'll they're the ones who are not only going to end up um surviving this but in a better position they were than when they started i remember last march when uh trump was doing the daily uh you know press announcements on the the status of the pandemic and for one of them he brought in a bunch of ceos of mm. places like walmart and other large corporations and i remember oh, I just having remember this thought of like we're looking at the the group of we're looking at the only only groups that will be left standing after this because yeah this, the all CEO, small business will well, die well, the ceo I, I, of, of jimmy john's was a part of that group yeah um so there will be like you know if there wasn't enough jimmy john's already there will be <laughs> more jimmy john's. jimmy john's we'll have well, jimmy I, john's walmart and amazon I, I remember watching one of those press conferences because because of COVID, i had to move back in with my te parents temporarily and my mom was mm -hmm. just very glued to COVID news she was always watching the, yeah. the news to find out what was happening oh, next i watched and, almost all of them yeah and and i remember trump making a comment where he's like you know this has been hard on all of us and then in his you know kind of uncouth usual sense he he w went to the the walmart ceo and he's like well it's been kind of good for you <laughs> and like it, it's one of those which um, is true it, it is it's one of those um i don't know trump being as much of a dumbass as he is will just straight up say what people are trying to hide generally which is yeah re retail uh needed the pandemic in a way like it it mm -hmm. uh i don't know it yeah um but so yeah. let's uh takeaways what's what's, guess, what's yeah, your what's big takeaway take from today's uh, conversation i don't know eat, eat the rich or something like that and also the the news is biased i don't know jared <laughs> uh geez I think that uh, the media is 
a complex and difficult topic that we are entering a an entirely new phase that's never been experienced before um, in all of human history with the way that info is distributed now, but mm. I prefer to boil things down to their most simplistic and settle on all journalists are evil. <laughs> I would, I would complicate that narrative by saying that most journalists are evil. <laughs> yeah. You don't even want to know about the rest. <laughs> Aaron, what's your takeaway from today? <laughs> um, that, uh, that, yeah, it's it's all um, it's all very complex. Um, but the best thing you can probably do um, when you see a narrative that is maybe that maybe seems a bit too straightforward is to realize and and seek out the the information that complicates that narrative i'm gonna need you to talk to my mom briefly <laughs> i mean i'm i can't tell you like i've had like several people that i know personally who have told reached out to tell me that they send or they sent um the informer articles that i wrote about the protests over the summer to their parents to try to explain to them what was going on in des moines um, so that's really what makes it all worthwhile um, mm -hmm. that, you know, I can assist in um, talking down your parents in any way possible. Honestly, that's all I look for in a journalist, podcast guest or well, general acquaintance. Not to not to start a whole other discussion here, but like the the thing, the thing that's interesting is because of all the conspiracy theorist shit that right wingers take in, um, they have a skepticism of media that's on the right track but incredibly misguided. And I found when I talk to a lot of those, a lot of them, I can be like, no, I I agree with you that the the media is biased. It's just it's not as biased in the direction that you think it is. Well, the thing is they're very selective with which media they're skeptical of. That's, that's also true. Yeah. Like right. it's got it's... comic sans in a bold color on a website that looks from two, like it's from 2005. That's probably trustworthy. Don't right. need to problematize yeah. that one. Yeah, the problem cool. is that like, you know, people, um, in general, are intuitive um but there's no real media literacy so wow. instead of being like you know the media the narratives that the media perpetuates serve those in power um that's true but the people in power aren't lizard people so <laughs> it, well let's not go that far right right <laughs> i've seen mark zuckerberg yeah yeah there's the, the videos of like Hillary Clinton like glitching out. Remember that's yeah exactly yeah. No, that's <laughs> one I buy a hundred percent. Yeah, listen to people saying. that we do on this show is every episode we have our guest uh, plug our patreon and aaron as our guest could you give us a patreon ad 
Um, sure. Subscribe to uh, this Patreon. What's this Patreon called? Very legal, very cool Patreon. No, subscribe to the very legal, very cool Patreon um, right now. Um, it's probably not that expensive. He's right. It's not. It's not. <laughs> um, and all all proceeds, some of the proceeds from um, the Patreon will go towards the foundation we're setting up to um, to help a fellow who's down bad. And oh, that's right. I think yeah. we can reiterate our, our fellow who's down bad for this month is still Evan. Um, oh, Evan Sand. I was going to Venmo him five bucks but haven't gotten around to it. I'll get to it, Evan. Um, and you can buy that. You can buy that planner you were going to get. And then uh, then maybe you won't be down, you know, down so bad. Yeah. So uh, so at the end of this month, we'll uh, we'll we'll ask for some submissions. And maybe I guess you can just email your your uh, your suggestions for who should February's fella who's down bad of the month be. Um, and, you know, We'll uh we'll send him five bucks. Um, I, I forgot we were doing this bit. Maybe I he won't be uh so so down bad. Um so you can send those to hello at very legal very dot cool. Oh and yeah, we'll, email uh, us. Yeah. You know, send us send us a name. Let us know why the fellas down bad, and uh, we'll go from there. I hope all these fellas level out. Yeah. <laughs> well, whether they do or they don't. They'll have about five more bucks to figure it out with. So <laughs> that's uh, that's the kind of charity work we Which, do here. Wait, can, at very can, legal, we, very cool. can we write this off on our taxes as like a charity uh, thing? We would have to make at least six hundred dollars um, through uh, through this in oh. order to have to pay taxes on it at all. Oh. But otherwise, yes, I think that we could. Yeah, just write it off okay, on the old right. Schedule C. So, yeah, so, yeah. <laughs> I'm sure uh, that's fine. Well, that leads us to the to the next segment, uh, which is Twitter news. And, do, and normally, do, do, do. Yeah, normally at this moment, there's a soundboard, but the soundboard isn't working this episode, and Jared would be playing. Are you trying to I'll play just it? Move, I'll move my headphones real close so the sound leaks in. I can play it for myself, but that's it. Okay. This is working. It's, this is good. I think it's good. I was going to just add it in post, but we could just. No, do this, this is better. Okay, it's Twitter news. Now, Twitter news is a segment where I find uh, some of the worst opinions I, I've found on Twitter. Um, so we're, we're going to start off with Sean, Sean Davis here. Um, who well, says. Josiah. Josiah, before you dive into that, I, I feel like we've got a really big announcement to make oh. about Twitter. Oh, was this is this that that Trump got banned? No, very legal, very cool is back oh, on Twitter. Oh, yeah. we, we are got, unbanned. We are unsuspended. <laughs> the the powers that be let us free. Oh, that's right. Yeah, my my Twitter's back. Um, I don't care about your Twitter. The very legal, very cool pod <laughs> Twitter account is back in action. Uh, we it shows that we have no subscribers and we're not following anyone, but we are and we do, and so we're back. That's cool. So you're saying that for a brief moment in time, you were very cool and very legal. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah, yes. So, 
So that was fun. Uh, it was funny. I found every time I've tweeted something around the lines of, ah, I might just have to accept that I have to make a new account. That's when the they finally look at my reports. Because that's, that's what happened when uh, with my main. I, I tweeted on this like separate account I'd made. I was like, I think I'm going to have to accept this is my main account now. And then suddenly my main account came back. And then I tweeted like, oh, I guess we're just going to have to make a new VLVC account. And then suddenly VLVC came back. So it's all about uh, passive aggressive posting. That's true. That's true. And all right. Back back to the regular Twitter back, news. Back to this. It, it was important to mention that Trump got banned because that's why everybody's been uh, dumb as shit on Twitter lately. So from, from Sean M. Dave... Sean Davis says, Twitter won't let you hashtag hashtag 1984. A dystopia novel about an evil big, te big tech government that spies on everyone, censors and manipulates speech, publishes wrong thought, and tortures dissidents for sport. There's Orwellian, and then there's banning references to Orwell, Orwellian. Um, That's Orwellian. I think, I think most people have caught on to this already. This has already been joked around a lot. You can't hashtag any numbers. It's not... It's not just 1984. It's just you can't hashtag a number because that's what the the hashtag is a number symbol, and that would that would cause problems if you could. I've actually never read 1984, and really now I really won't. <laughs> I think it's a good book. It's fine. I I think I'm I'm proud of Aaron for being one of the few people that's not read it who admits that they've not read it because. There was some study a while back that that's the book people lie about reading the most. Huh. <laughs> I just, I, it's good to know you're such an honest person. I mean, my, my undergraduate degree was in English and American literature. Um, so I've read a lot of other books. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I, I feel like I can, that frees me to be more honest about the stuff I haven't that's read. True. That's, that's true. That's fair. Yeah, because, yeah, you're like, I haven't read that, but I've read, you know, all the other ones I'm supposed to read. Right. So. You've I've, got I've read the book about the same that you know how to read. One, yeah. <laughs> uh, next tweet we got today comes from more people bitching about Trump getting banned on Twitter. We got from uh, Dean Browning at Dean Browning PA. If Twitter had been around during the era of Jesus Christ, he too would have been banned from the platform for misinformation. Those on the right side of history are rarely appreciated during their time on Earth. Patriots, do not be dismayed. We are on the right side of history. Can we make a t-shirt for the show that just says Jesus would have been canceled? <laughs> yeah, I, I'm, I'm down for that. If we have enough people buying yeah, stuff from this, I would totally, I would do that. <laughs> I like this thought experiment, though. I think it's compelling. I think I so, personally too. think that if Jesus Christ was alive today, he'd be executed by the federal government. <laughs> right, right, yeah. Uh, more accurate parallel, probably. I don't. <laughs> I think he'd be executed by big tech corporations. I like. I do think it's interesting that they're putting getting banned from Twitter on par with the passion. Um, <laughs> that's fascinating. <laughs> Well, remember, I mean, speech can't I guess, happen outside of Twitter. It's like the logical conclusion of your martyrdom complex, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. Well, and Right, which was, that's kind of like my, actually my Twitter kind of went through a good Jesus arc then, if we're following that, because I got banned, but then I 
that I resurrected and, and I'm back, you know? So at what point do you like ascend to Twitter heaven? I don't know. Some point. I, that's the next thing I'm going to do. Nice. <laughs> uh, and last tweet I got for you. This one's not a bad take. This is just funny to me. Um, <laughs> so I, I have to explain it better because the, the article gets into it. But um, so they there are these uh, electronic Wi-Fi connected chastity belt cages that um, not chastity belts, chastity cages. Yes, Very different. sorry. Yes, that that uh, BDSM folks use. And in that context, penis. yes, I got it. Uh, th this tweet it's says a cage on their penis. Thank you, Jared. Yeah, um, they, they lock their cock and balls I, I, yeah. into a small cage I, that prohibits an erection. Yeah, yeah. We, no, they can't yeah. get hard so we get, because we got their it, cock I think we is in it. a cage. <clears throat> so the Does that make says, sense? Yeah, okay. So now, as anyone understanding that being connected to Wi-Fi being a bad idea. The tweet says, I knew a hacker took control and locked the Cassidy cages of several men, asking them for a ransom to unlock it. Your cock is mine now, the hacker told one of the victims. I just thought that was funny that that happened. And to reiterate, what a cock or chastity cage is, it's a little cage that you put your cock in. Thank you, Jared. And it stops you from getting an erection. I, I, yeah, we weren't. Clear. Well, it doesn't stop you. It just makes it hurt, or so yeah. I've heard. It's definitely a good argument against the Internet of Things. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is the problem. All those startups that want to just like this is a you know a coffee machine, but it's got Wi-Fi. This is a good <laughs> case for why that's a bad idea. Oh, all those things are a bad idea. Mm -hmm. But I still get them anyways. <laughs> I'm gonna hack into your house overall. Just did I tell you about my uh, my smart security system, my intruder alert? Oh, I should hack that. <laughs> what I did is I I've got the smart lights mm -hmm. and I've got the Google Homes, and so I set up a an automation that uh, with a certain phrase it turns all the lights in the house red. And on full vol volume plays <laughs> Hip to Be Square by Huey Lewis in the News. That's good. Um, we've had yet have a chance to use it, but I'm oh. hoping there will be a home invasion at some point soon. Or I'm going to hack into it. And you can turn my lights on and off. Yeah. All right. Well, so uh, for the next next section, Parlor News. Oh, right. Um, so <laughs> the post that we have here is a networking error. It seems that we're either over capacity or you're experiencing a poor network connection. Um, and that seems to be all that's on my feed. On Parlor right now? Yeah, Parlor mm -hmm. got shut down. So I've, I've decided to keep the Parlor app um, for old time's sake and uh, just let that, let that little icon live on my phone. I think it's funny that the parlor info got leaked. They, they like somebody hacked it and leaked everything because yeah. you had that account just for the show to read weird parlor tweets, but now you're on right. that and probably, hate speech. probably a few lists of like, yeah, local Trump people in your area now. So that's cool. Hot singles for Trump want to meet you. <laughs> All right. Well, I think we're just uh, doing plugs and then we're done. Uh, All right. 
Let's Jared, do it. would you would you like to start out? Yeah, I would like to uh, plug Cellmate. It is a Wi-Fi connected chastity cage for your <laughs> cock and balls. It's a chastity cage, but it's connected to Wi-Fi, so your partner can control it remotely. And now you take the cage, you stick your cock and your balls in it, and you hand over control to, you know, your dom. And this person can control whether or not you can get erect. Um, it's a cock cage, chastity cage. Not to be confused with the chastity belt, very different purpose, but it is to stop you from having sex. Uh, though it does look like there is a hole on the side so that you can pee if need be. Thank you, um, and it's a cock cage for your cock and balls. I'm sure Aaron is really glad he came on this show right now after that. Um, I, I'd like to plug um, uh, the, the podcast Fiasco Knots. Uh, I'm getting really into the ga RPG game Fiasco. And Fiasco Knots is the only other Fiasco, only Fiasco podcast that exists. And it's fun. Uh, Aaron, anything you want to plug? Um, read the Iowa Informer at the Iowa Informer or at www.iowainformer.com uh, for all of the, the realist news about Iowa. There we go. It's good. And Aaron, where where can people find you online if if they so chose? You can read my newsletter um, when it's occasionally updated at aaroncalvin.substack.com. Uh, you can see all of my work at aaroncalvin.com, and you can follow me on Twitter at Aaron P. Calvin. Yeah. And and what was your name again? <laughs> Right, right. Uh, Aaron Calvin, yeah. <laughs> thank you. All right, let's uh, let's go ahead and wrap this up. Um, thank you so much for listening to Very Legal, Very Cool, uh, an episode with uh, Iowa's most infamous journalist. Um, the music is a garage band loop that I stuck a drum beat behind, and you can follow us at Twitter at VLegalVCoolPod. Uh, or you could email us at hello at verylegalvery.cool, or you could uh, find us at verylegalvery.cool. All those cool things. And if you if you go to our website and go to the merch section, you will find a whole list of branded chastity cages for your cock. <laughs> Very good. Very good. All right. Uh, All right. Thanks for having me. Very Legal, Very Cool is brought to you in part by food. You all need it. We all have it. And at Very Legal, Very Cool, we are large sponsors and proponents of food. Um, and we would like to thank our sponsors at the FDA for the large financial contribution on behalf of food to help run the show. Aaron, anything to add? Um, we all love food, don't we? Um, maybe, um, just think about it a little more.